This podcast is proudly supported by CareerFax. The team at CareerFax is just as passionate about connecting people with the right course as you are. As Australia's number one careers and course search site, CareerFax attracts over 12 million visitors a year and have partnered with over 50 leading providers. Want to increase your student enrolments? Head to careerfax.com.au, your partner in student acquisition. From Claire Field and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. First up, though, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll notice that there's been a bit of a change of format in the last couple of weeks. When I originally launched the show, I'd been aiming to schedule one episode a month, but there's been such a lot to talk about and so many leaders in the sector happy to share their views that I'll now be publishing episodes more frequently. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Andrew Norton, one of Australia's leading higher education commentators, and I should say with some very good insights into the VET sector as well. Andrew and I talk about a range of issues occurring in the sector at the moment, as well as future reforms. If you think he only knows about higher education, strap yourselves in. He's got some very interesting things to say about both sectors. Well, it's my very great pleasure to have Andrew Norton join me. And I would have said Andrew Norton from the Grattan Institute, but as of today, as as we're recording, um, it's not only a public holiday in Melbourne, uh, but it's the first day of Andrew in the next part of his uh, his career. So, Andrew, thank you so much for making the time to uh, to join us. I wonder if you could start off, please, by, I'm sure you're super well known to everyone who is listening, but not everyone might know all of the aspects of your background, and I find it uh, really helpful for me and, you know, had other feedback from listeners to understand the different roles people have had um, as I then hear them talk about the sector. So would you give us a bit of insight into the different roles that you've had in the sector, please? Well, I started 22 years ago, uh, and my first job was as a ministerial advisor on higher education to the then minister, Dr. David Kemp. Now, I was hired really not based on my expertise in higher education. I'd been reading the higher ed section of the Australian for many years, but that was about the extent of it. It was really because Dr. Kemp had mentored me when I was an undergraduate at Monash University in the 1980s, and uh, we'd had various discussions about me working with him over the years, and once he got the higher ed portfolio, uh, we decided to, to do that. And so that was a, a crash course in higher education policy, so you've got to learn very, very fast on that job. Sure. And, and from there, where did you go? Um, talk us through, where did you go next? Uh, after that, I went to the University of Melbourne, working for the then Vice-Chancellor, the late Alan Gilbert. Uh, I was a policy advisor to him. At that time, policy advisors to Vice-Chancellors were quite rare. They're quite common now. Uh, I stayed after Alan left and then worked for Glyn Davis. Uh, 
when he was Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University, and then I went to Grattan in 2011. So really three main types of, of roles in the sector. Fantastic, and I'm not going to press you on where you're going next because uh, we're all waiting to, to hear and see where that is um, because you have had uh, such an important influence on, on the sector, but we're all waiting with keen and, uh, and eagle eyes to, to see that. So I am going to ask you then to talk us through some of the key trends and the issues that you've seen and you're focused on uh, in the sector, and I know you, and I haven't had time to read it closely, you just published a, a blog post on your blog. So whether it's that or other issues, talk us through what are some of the key things that we should be uh, keeping an eye on. Well, I think it's probably two broad themes I've worked on. and Probably the most important is this issue of how do you actually distribute student places and funding between higher education providers, between courses, between students. And I think all these issues in different ways keep coming up in the sector. And so the work that I've been doing sort of most recently over the last couple of years has really been about, and this has really been driven by you know, poor outcomes, say from 2014 in the higher ed system, you know, what's happening to these more marginal students who are getting the system who may not have got in in the past? Are they dropping out, which, of course, a lot of them are? Or would they have actually made a better choice to go into vocational education in the first place, which is the, the, the last report we put out for Grattan? But if you take it back further in my career, um, time at Grattan in particular, you know, this whole issue about demand-driven funding was, to me, the most important issue because it was a way of actually using all the knowledge that's out there in the sector and students to actually coordinate these places in ways that you simply couldn't have done under the old block grant system that preceded demand-driven funding. And so now we find these issues are, are resurfacing because, again, we've got the situation where universities are capped and therefore we don't have a good way of shifting places between universities and the universities themselves don't have a huge incentive to reorganise what they offer to meet student needs. So in some ways, we've come you know, full circle to an earlier part of my career with, with similar problems. I guess the other issue that I've really worked on is, and this probably comes both from the fact that my career started in government and from the fact that I was in the Grattan Institute, which had a broader perspective than just higher ed, which is the whole funding issues around higher education. So what you tend to see is that sort of within the sector and academia, they tend to assume away the, the financial constraints of government, when in fact that's a central issue you've got to work your way through. And, for example, I did a lot of work on reducing the cost of help the, the student loan scheme. So one of the things uh, that I wanted to next ask you to reflect on, uh, you talked uh, earlier about having had uh, Dr Kemp as a mentor and then having worked with him as an advisor, uh, but you did also work with him slightly more recently in the sector when uh, Minister, then Minister for Education, Chris Pine, uh, asked Dr Kemp and yourself to, to provide some thoughts on uh, higher education uh, reform. And obviously, subsequently, the government came up with a, a different set of influence by, no doubt, but a different set of, of policy recommendations for the sector and then weren't successfully able, <coughs> excuse me, to legislate them. Uh, can you talk us through how do you think, what, what position do you think the sector would be in today 
if those reforms that you'd recommended had got up, and in case there are people who don't read all your reports quite as closely as, as I do, uh, can you talk us through in summary what you were recommending and then where you think the sector would be up to if those reforms had, had been put in place? Yes, so in 2013, there was actually quite a lot of criticism of the then new uh, demand-driven system. And the previous minister, Senator Kim Carr from Labor, had raised doubts about whether it should continue. Uh, there was a change of government in the 2013 election. Chris Pine became minister. And very soon after he became minister, he said very, very similar things to Kim Carr about the demand-driven system. And so this is obviously a concern to someone like me who supported it and uh, went to see him and combined with some other things that he had said. Uh, this led to a review of the demand-driven system, which uh, David Kemp and myself were appointed to do. I guess the really key three things that came out of that, one was it recommended that the demand-driven system be retained uh, for the public universities. Uh, we recommended that it be extended to the the non-university higher education sector, and we recommended it be extended to uh, diplomas and associate degrees in higher education. So previously, or at the time, it was still bachelor degree only. So they were our three main recommendations. Unfortunately for David and myself, uh, at the same time in the government, there were a number of other important things going on. One was the broader uh, budget issues where higher ed, along with other, other portfolios, was going to have to lose some funding. And then this idea that fees should be deregulated. And so I'd had a sort of a similar experience in the late 1990s with David where we tried to get fee deregulation up. Uh, my view was this would be so controversial that it would derail any of the recommendations we had in the demand room review. So I was not happy about this development, but of course, I'm not the government. And it did go into the parliament as a package. And the trouble with these big bang reforms is the whole thing gets hostage to the least popular elements. And, you know, the inevitable result was that it didn't get through the parliament. Even though I think that demand-driven parts on their own uh, did have a reasonable chance of getting through the parliament. And so if they had of just those uh, three areas that you're um, that you've you've talked us through. Um, how do you think the sector would look today if leave aside the you know um, uncapping of, of fees? How do you think the sector would look today if if that's where things had ended up and your reforms had been implemented? Well, I think there's some interesting stories there because you know one of the recommendations I said was to bring the non-university higher education sector into the demand-driven system if they wanted to, but. If they had gone in at that point, they would have faced the same caps that the public universities faced from the end of 2017. So it could have actually been quite a negative move uh, for some of the non-university providers to go into the publicly funded system. And this goes to a point that I often made when I spoke to ACPET and other private provider groups that it was always be careful what you wish for that you know, even though clearly the funding system is very biased in favour of the public universities, there are risks as well as benefits associated with being in the public funding system. And each institution would have to think very, very carefully about uh, whether they should go in or not. 
And my advice was always, if you have an interesting product that relies on fees that are above the government funding rates, I would strongly recommend you, you probably think very seriously about staying out of the public funding system. If the diploma recommendation had got through, I think we would have seen uh, much greater growth in what are called pathway programs, diplomas that lead into a bachelor degree. And this was one of the issues that we identified in the demand-driven review, that by the nature of expanding access to higher education, you're bringing in people who have uh, weaker school results who may not be quite ready for, for a bachelor degree study. And the idea with most of these diploma things, essentially you're doing first-year level uh, subjects, but you're doing it with more academic assistance than the universities typically provide. And that's to bring you up to speed with some of the academic skills that uh, you might not have got at school and need some help acquiring. So I actually saw that uh, the diploma recommendation uh, is really dealing with or helping to deal with this issue of the people who are going to higher ed now, mightn't have gone in the past, who can succeed but need some help in the early years. And one of the things I seem to recall in one of the last forums that I uh, put together uh, when I was at ACPET uh, was we were discussing this and you were one of the speakers and I was possibly being a little alarmist uh, and, and quite concerned that if that recommendation had got up, we would see a real uh, shift away from students enrolling in TAFE and other vet providers to do their diplomas there and uh, a considerable move into higher education and you, of course, whipped out some very good uh, PowerPoint slides with good charts and statistics on them and pointed out that, in fact, at that stage, the diploma market, for want of a better term, was so heavily dominated by the vet sector, it would take quite a while for that, that shift to occur. Do you still think that's, that's right? That if, uh, if, that, if that funding change comes in, it would be quite slow, that move from uh, vet to higher education students, instead of choosing a, a TAFE diploma, would, would choose a university diploma? I think it's probably still right, but, you know, the last report we did at Grattan on this vocational higher ed choice was partly motivated by the idea, not necessarily that people were actively rejecting vocational education, but that they were not considering it as much as they should. Uh, I think overall they are still two reasonably distinct markets. So when we were doing that report on the choice, I was actually a little bit surprised at the extent of this that... On the whole, the growth in higher education seems to have come mostly from people who wouldn't have done any post-school education in earlier times, rather than from people who were headed to the vocational system. Of course, there are some who, you know, who are going to higher ed who would have gone to vocational, but probably on the whole, uh, it is from people who did nothing previously. And what we observed was that if you look at some of the, the numbers here, the two systems can coexist, that in the early years of sort of the growth in higher ed, late last decade, uh, partly driven by things in Victoria, there was simultaneous substantial growth in vocational enrolments in the same sort of late teenage, early 20s market. And then when vocational enrolments went into decline a few years ago, the decline in, again in that late teenage market was much, much larger than could be explained by any growth in higher ed. And so to me, it's suggesting that both of them are principally in their expansionary phases, principally drawing on people who wouldn't otherwise do 
any post-school education. On the other hand, I actually still do take your point that I think this is a, a real issue that at the margins, this may not be a massive number of people, but at the margins, there probably are people who would prefer to or should go into vocational education, but because the funding system tends to be very, very biased in favour of higher ed, uh, they do a diploma, perhaps under the, the new under the demand-driven system I propose, or they go straight into a bachelor degree under the demand-driven system as it existed. And in doing that, they're putting themselves at substantial risk of either never finishing the course, or if they do finish, uh, really struggling to find the kinds of jobs that will you know, give them the, the financial benefits of higher education. Yeah, so we're, we're back to the sort of funding, the, cru the crucial role that funding plays, which is really where you started us off. And I will put some links in the uh, notes to this episode for people to find some of those reports if they, if they haven't got to them already, as well as a, a link to your latest post. So thank you for those uh, reflections. Now I wanted to ask you to get out your crystal ball and look to the future. We've got such a plethora of reviews. There's going to be no pop quiz for quite how many there are uh, because I'm not sure any of us quite can actually count them all up. But there are such a number of reviews underway into different parts of both the uh, higher education sector, uh, things that cut across all of the sectors, post-secondary reviews, da-da-da-da-da. Think you, think you know that landscape probably even better than I do. So thinking about the reviews that are in train and your professional judgment as to where things are likely to land, can you talk us through where we might see the sector in, let's say, three to five years? I think there's some interesting work going on on the kinds of choices that uh, young people make in their final school years. This goes down to sort of fundamentals about what are they actually taught. Uh, and it's going to be a new uh, careers advisory uh, institute set up by the federal government to try and help people, steer, uh, steer people towards careers that match their interests and are likely to be in growth areas. And certainly the, the Joyce Review of Vocational Education, uh, which came out earlier this year, uh, they had a survey which showed that large numbers of young people seem to be doing the wrong qualification given the kinds of occupational aspirations they have. So it sounds like there is just some fairly basic ignorance and confusion about which courses people should be doing. And at least in theory, it shouldn't be too hard to set a reasonable percentage of those uh, down the right path. Then we've got this review of the Australian Qualifications Framework, which sort of sets out what the different qualifications mean. Uh, in some ways, I think probably that I'm not, not privy to the, the findings, but in some ways the diploma to me is the, the most interesting of the qualifications. And the diploma can be taught in either vocational or higher education. And for many years, I've been hearing complaints that the vocational diploma in particular isn't necessarily fit for purpose that's sort of too orientated around particular occupations and could could deal could benefit from the greater flexibility of higher ed. So I actually think I'm not quite sure what will happen there, but I would say the diploma staying with its vocational emphasis, but you know, equipping people for a wider variety of uh, occupations, I think would be a good development. Then we've got a whole lot of things going on on the vocational funding side for vocational funding. 
as you know better than anyone, this is long overdue, but uh, anyone who's got experience in the sector would have to be uh, a little bit pessimistic about a positive outcome. I think you put up a post recently on the hundreds of policy changes in vocational education over the, the last 10 or 20 years. And so it's a very unstable environment. And in my view, one of the difficulties of that is that even if you've got good policies, uh, if the sector and students don't believe it is stable, they can't make long-term plans around that. And a whole lot of you know, positive things that might happen under those settings won't happen because, because of the history of uncertainty in the sector. So to me, policy settings that are both good and stable and believed to be stable are really, really important to encourage investment of time and money by both students and providers. And I think that's um, something that Stephen Joyce uh, referenced in his review and also now that he's, you know, out speaking at, at conferences in his role as the, the chair, um, oversighting, hopefully, implementation of his reforms and he talks through the the lack of confidence in the sector from students and parents and employers and, and government. So, yes, we do hope for stability uh, in the VET sector. Tell me about the, the universities and the new performance measures and how funding will be allocated. Do you see that lasting for another three to five? Well, A, it's got to be implemented first, so that's 2020. Do you see that lasting? Is it going to be under pressure? The minister's got a group of vice-chancellors to discuss reforms across a number of different areas. How will that university funding side of things go, do you think? Uh, I don't think the current system can or should last very long. So I think the performance funding, I'm generally against performance funding. Uh, partly this goes back to the issue of the stability that we just discussed, that we've had performance funding a number of times in the past in Australia, and it's always suffered from the criteria constantly changing and the money being abolished in the first budget panic. And so if you're a rational vice chancellor, you'll say, well, even if I do the things that they want me to do, I'll probably never see the cash anyway. So, you know, essentially, what's the point? And so my advice to vice-chancellors is don't do anything that you weren't already planning to do. Uh, most of the indicators, you know, in employment and student satisfaction, you know, universities should be monitoring these things anyway. So always looking for improvements, but I would not plough huge resources, new resources into them on the assumption they'll be financially rewarded at the end. Because the other thing about the particular performance scheme that we've got now is that because the government has this odd practice of basically appointing the vested interest to advise them on what they should do, a committee of vice-chancellors essentially recommended a fairly soft performance funding system where you're virtually guaranteed some of your money and it's not very hard to get most of the rest. So from that point of view, I don't think it will have a a big impact either way. They'll get slightly more money than they would have if they, we hadn't had this performance funding. The big problem to me is that even with performance funding, uh, the total amount of money paid for bachelor degree students by the government will continue to decline in real terms after adjusting for inflation. This probably won't matter a lot the next couple of years because we're actually in a, a demographic lull that there's a little fewer school leavers out there. But by the mid-2020s, 
we'll have the, the biggest birth cohorts in Australia's history uh, reaching university age, and the system is totally unprepared for meeting their needs. And so for me, that's why the current system simply cannot last, that if it does last, we'll get like we have in the past with some of these baby booms that even when the number of student places is growing, if the baby boom is too large, you'll actually have declining participation rates in higher education. So this actually happened in the 1970s, where sort of the Gough Whitlam free education is regarded as sort of a hugely progressive policy, but participation rates actually slightly fell in that era. And that's because there was a baby boom cohort coming through, which was bigger than the increase in student places at the time. And as a result, participation rates went down. And to me, the minister has publicly acknowledged in a couple of speeches now that the, the baby boom is coming, but as yet we don't have any solution to it. My view is that demand-driven funding is perfectly designed to deal with these kinds of problems that are simply automatically adjusts to demographic change. You've given us an awful lot to, to think about and to keep an eye on for the future, uh, including how the government's going to juggle budget imperatives and getting the funding settings right to make sure that people aren't missing out on either university or, you know, hopefully with a, a more stable uh, vet funding arrangement on a, on a vocational place. So, Andrew, thank you again for making the time. Very best of luck for the next part of, uh, of your career. We all look forward to, to seeing where you end up and continuing to be informed by your very thoughtful analysis. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. So there's a lot happening in the sector, uh, both higher education and VET, and a lot for governments to think about. As you'll have worked out, we recorded the episode before the Minister announced the final university performance funding measures and the weightings for, for that growth uh, funding. And no doubt there's going to be lots more to talk about on funding, as those measures are better down in the sector as well as I'm keeping an eye on the potential for some partner opportunities uh, for the private sector to work with universities to strengthen their employment outcomes. As always, I very much welcome your ideas and thoughts. Where's the higher education sector headed? What do reforms in that part of the sector mean for students and for the vocational education and training sector, both TAFEs and private providers? If you want to share your ideas, you'll find me on Twitter, that's at Seafield and Associates. I'm on LinkedIn, and you can also find Clarefield and Associates on Facebook. Lastly, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. It does help people find the show, and it also tells me what you want more of. If you want to subscribe to the show in your podcast feed, it will automatically download the next episode as soon as I've got it available for you. And that's going to be a discussion next week with Nicole Brigg, the PVC International at Macquarie University. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Music